Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And finally, there they were. Thank you very much, um, David Cameron. Uh, very good to be with you. My name is Lex Greensill. Thank you for the opportunity to participate in this important hearing. When financier Lex Greensill and former Prime Minister David Cameron appeared before two House of Commons select committees recently to answer questions, it was the first time either had spoken publicly about the affair. His claim is that when he was lobbying for it at the start of the pandemic, you know, he really didn't know that it was in a pickle and that slightly strained credulity. So what did we learn when the two men at the centre of a scandal finally came out into the open? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, Cameron and the Toxic Banker, Part 6. Questions and answers. Leaving more questions. As listeners know, we at Stories of Our Times have been following the story of the Greensill Affair, how an unknown banker dazzled the top civil servant, was helicoptered into Downing Street and got his big idea to help speed up payments to suppliers, supply chain finance, commissioned by the government. We heard how, with his company about to go bust last year, his advisor, former Prime Minister David Cameron, the man in charge when Greensill entered Downing Street, started calling his old colleagues in government begging for financial assistance, thus creating a lobbying scandal. The story developed, and we then learned how Greensill's business relationship with the metal magnate Sanjeev Gupta caused Greensill Capital's collapse as Gupta borrowed incessantly to build an empire that promised much, but has delivered little. And then, at last, two weeks ago, MPs and journalists got to hear for the first time what two of the three men at the centre of this whole affair had to say for themselves. David Cameron, uh, very good to be with you, former Prime Minister. My name's Gabriel Pogrand. I'm the Sunday Times Whitehall correspondent. It was fascinating because we've not really heard much from Cameron full stop since he left office. You know, I remember about a year ago just asking myself the question, you know, what exactly is he up to? I think I recall kind of looking through the, the accounts of a company he was behind um, on Company's House and seeing that he had a particular arrangement whereby he wasn't required to disclose as much detail as other companies might be required to disclose. And I was just thinking to myself, you know, it's a great mystery, kind of, you know, what Cameron's doing, what he's up to, how he reflects on his own political legacy. This is a 
painful day, coming back to a place that I love and respect so much, albeit virtually, um, but in these circumstances. House of Commons select committees are generally responsible for overseeing the work of government departments and are made up of MPs from all parties in the Commons. David Cameron appeared before two of them, the Treasury Select Committee and the Public Accounts Committee. Select committees often scrutinise legislation, look into scandals and try shed light on things that have taken place that matter to the taxpayer. Now, where was he speaking from and where were they? In a different world, there would have been a uh, squadron of snappers waiting outside Portcullis House with flashes on, running up to Cameron and taking pictures of him. On this occasion, sadly, it was all conducted via Zoom. I think Cameron did it from his London home. It's a different texture and experience, for sure. Zoom is a great drama killer, really, isn't it? I mean, it means you can't kind of look around and see people nodding their heads or kind of raising their eyes to the heavens and so on. It's just very flat. Uh, How did he appear? Because one of my relatives was live texting it to some of the rest of the family and felt that Cameron was, to say the very least, moist. I mean, it's sort of interesting because Cameron anyway has a sort of insouciance and often appeared during his time in office to exist above the fray of events. He had a sort of superciliousness, arguably, or that's certainly what his critics thought. And this meant he was even more kind of removed from events and you couldn't see the spittle flying and you couldn't really get his complexion as he was put under difficult questioning. I mean, he he didn't say sorry. In his first statement, he said he regretted the informality of his text. On the wider test of, of what is appropriate, as I've said previously, it would be better only to use the most formal means of contact via a letter which sort of kind of flirted with an apology, was a a hop, a skip, and a jump away from one. But then in this inquiry, he was asked to unpack that more. Do you regret your involvement with Green still? I can ask you whether you regretted this. No regrets, then, about your own personal behaviour. And the more he said about it, the more it became apparent, I don't even really think he did regret it. I mean, I was just sort of about to check myself and say it's not for me to kind of characterise what was going on in his head. But taken at his words, he didn't appear to be particularly mournful or regretful. He said that, you know, the circumstances of COVID were so extraordinary, it merited extraordinary actions. So a single letter or email would be more appropriate. But we were in very different circumstances when COVID happened. He had no choice but to throw the kitchen sink at the government, you know, in an attempt to get them to listen to his pleas on behalf of Greensill. I think James Kirkup, the former Telegraph political editor, wrote a piece in The Spectator in which he said, something cannot be embarrassing unless the person in question is embarrassed. (laughs) You know, embarrassing describes the feeling on behalf of another person to some extent. There's nothing that's all factually embarrassing if the person doesn't feel they've got anything to be ashamed of. And I think that did accurately characterise Cameron's approach to this. His view, and he sort of said it in a... Um, sort of r- rather amusing, soundbitey way. He said that I think we mustn't get into this situation in this country where, just because a business goes into administration, it doesn't mean that everything about it was wrong. Just because a company collapses, you know, it doesn't make the whole thing a big fraud. Now, you know, that's notwithstanding the fact that there are now literally investigations into potential criminal fraud by. Um, the Gupta company that was symbiotic with Greensill. But no, he's not sorry as long as you're of it. 
Gabriel, I, I had a feeling earlier when you were answering a question that you were on the edge of saying that you weren't sure that his question showed that he'd actually understood what had happened to the company. It's an interesting point that you make, because this really matters. I mean, because either Cameron did know what was going on at the company and lobbied for it nonetheless, or he didn't know at all, in which instance, you know, perhaps Prime Minister ought to have considered the company he was lobbying for in greater detail, or there was something in between. And I think that Cameron, to be fair to him, he is likely to exist somewhere in between on that spectrum of fool to no knowledge. I mean, he was asked, what did you know about the company? What research did you do into it before you joined it? Obviously, I asked lots of questions of the company about every aspect of the business, from the role of insurance to the way the Credit Suisse and other funds work to the list of customers. Cameron disclosed that he learned a lot about the company through its own internal podcast. I listened every week to the um, sort of company podcast that was describing how the company was going. And there seemed to be um, a, a good position with 28 insurers. Which, by the way, if anybody's listening to this and has copies of that, I'd love to listen to myself. <laughs> um, given that the company had for many a year been subject to scrutiny by Her Majesty's Sunday Times as well as the FT. The fact that Cameron kind of says he got his information about Greensill through a sort of saccharine company podcast might tell its own story. But he basically said that he didn't really know how much trouble the company was in until December 2020. Just to be absolutely clear, I did not believe in March or April uh, when I was doing this contact, that there was a risk of Greensill falling over. Um, I, I didn't think that. So his claim is that when he was lobbying for it at the start of the pandemic, you know, he really didn't know that it was in a pickle. And that slightly strained credulity because there are these records that have been released by the Bank of England in which they say that Greensill representatives told them in a meeting that Cameron attended that they faced significant pressure in current market conditions at the start of COVID. So he did know that COVID had really knocked the company, but his claim is he only knew how much deep doo-doo it was in about a year later. Did we learn much about the remuneration he got from Greensill Capital? Well, there was this testy exchange with Mel Stride, which he began in very kind of British fashion. Can I ask you a, a delicate question, but I think a very important one? Before going for the juggler and saying, can you tell us something about what you would expect to have gained had the, uh, your uh, involvement gone to plan? <laughs> and Cameron, he sort of wouldn't say anything initially. Then he said it was a very big salary. I was paid an annual amount, a generous annual amount, far more than what I earned as Prime Minister. And I had uh, shares, not share options. It was much more than what he earned as Prime Minister, which was, you know, mere, mere shrapnel at £150,000. And then, when subjected to further scrutiny, Cameron sort of performed a bit of a pivot and said... I don't think the amount is particularly germane to answering those questions, and as far as I'm concerned, it's a private matter. His view was that because he sincerely did this lobbying for the sake of the British economy in its hour of need, 
why is the fact he was paid kind of germane? You know, he was acting um, <laughs> in good faith for this company. Greasel, in his own appearance, by the way, when asked why the company collapsed, gave three reasons, you know, one of which was COVID and the drying up of capital. When you put that together with Cameron's lobbying at the height of the pandemic, it is hard to leave with any conclusion other than that, of course, he was lobbying primarily for the sake of Greensill. Now, in his original statement, uh, if we recall, he did say that he thought, while he didn't think his lobbying was wrong, he was now reflecting uh, upon whether it was right, essentially, which is an interesting distinction. What did we get in his testimony about that? Had he now decided it was wrong on reflection? What had he decided about it? He said something which was particularly amusing, which was... Perhaps there is a role for a sort of a, a committee of some uh, former permanent secretaries and people with great business experience to give give advice on that, because there isn't really a roadmap for a ex-prime minister. Cameron said that it can be quite hard for people like him to know what the limits are. Perhaps I would have found that beneficial. Because of that, and because of what he said about there being important lessons to learn and his having reflected on this on length, the tone was one of regret. But in terms of what he'd learned, I mean, I sort of go back to this point that he disclosed for the first time that, you know, he thought the only way of getting through to people during the pandemic was by bombarding them with text. Standing back from it, looking back at it now, you know, I do understand that ex-prime ministers have to be very careful about what they do and very careful about uh, the measures they take. He sort of uses phrase, if ever there's occasion when um, a business has a commercial proposition to put to government, it will be a single letter or email. But then also in this instance said that that wouldn't have really done it either. And, you know, obviously this single piece of paper notion is, I mean, it's sort of a, a little fanciful one piece of paper, but how many people do you get to give it to? Can you not send a screenshot of it to somebody else? I, I didn't get the impression that any of the Labour MPs or, or indeed many of the Tory ones were captivated by that idea, but that was sort of his get-out-of-jail-free card. Did he in any way reflect upon the major problem which people raised with it, which was that he was able to make contacts with people that other business people who didn't have that his history weren't going to be able to make. In other words, that it was essentially unfair. Cameron says that lots of people lobby the government, heads of big banks, heads of big institutions, big charities. You know, he saw themselves as within that bracket rather than being at this kind of elevated pedestal of importance. And he says something which a lot of people have said in, you know, I sort of think this myth has been perpetuated quite widely in relation to the scandal, which is, was he sort of indicated that because his proposals weren't actioned, you know, he can't have been that influential, <laughs> which I think is a mistake. You know, as Nick McPherson, the former permanent secretary of the Treasury, has said, it is problematic that the government spent two and a half months examining these proposals. The Treasury had, had looked at Greensill's ideas, said no thanks, then Cameron calls and texts Rishi. All of a sudden, the Treasury turns around on a sixpence and says, OK, we'll spend, you know, many more weeks and months investigating Cameron's ideas. You know, sort of in terms of disaggregating this notion that the lobbying didn't work. Um, you know, yes, the ideas were not in and of themselves good enough. But, you know, who knows if they had been decent or if they'd been equivalent to what another company was lobbying, what would have happened? 
who knows what would have happened if a charity or a pressure group that had even more laudable proposals, you know, had come along and sought to bend the ear of Tom Scholar or Richie Sunak. And then lastly, and I think kind of most significantly, and this um, kind of infuriates me when I see it, it's just not true that Greensill did not receive taxpayers or government help, and it's not true they didn't cost the taxpayer any money. I mean, Greensill, as, as we've explored, carried out supply chain finance schemes for pharmacies. He received numerous partnerships with NHS bodies and trusts to deliver a payroll scheme for doctors and nurses. He was an accredited lender under the CL Bill scheme, as part of which he was able to loan £400 million pounds of money backed by the taxpayer and so the idea that you know Greensill had nothing to do with the British state I mean it just happens to be false. And before we come onto the texts themselves and the calls and the emails because they're pretty fascinating did Cameron have any reflection on the way in which the story had come out because unless you guys in the Sunday Times and the Financial Times have been doing your work we wouldn't know most of this. This was one of the most sort of interesting and manifestly false aspects of Cameron's testimony, he said, Because of the reforms I introduced in 2010, there's quarterly reporting, you see exactly who's been meeting who, and I think that's very important, and I obviously knew that at the time, and knew that uh, if these meetings took place, which I hope they would, they'd be publicly reported on. And it's just not true. I mean, he says that all these meetings were published officially, and thanks to disclosure requirements that he introduced for government departments, this was all kind of low-hanging fruit, and Anybody and everybody could have known about it. Actually, you know, I credit the Financial Times here, as we must. They have been on top of this for months and saw that the Treasury had met representatives of Greensill Capital, but then they subjected that to a freedom of information request and the department dragged its feet and wouldn't say anything. That, or Cameron's meeting with Hancock, say, would never, ever, ever have come out without sources putting their trust in the Sunday Times and Financial Times. And I mean, part of it as well is some of the information just wasn't recorded full stop. We know now that there were all these records the Treasury held back detailing their correspondence uh, with Cameron himself, for instance. But part of the vulnerability of uh, rules for monitoring this stuff is if it's deemed to be a social event or a kind of personal gathering, it doesn't need to be officially recorded. It has been said that when Cameron took Greensill and Bill Crothers to meet Hancock, it was a social event first. So as long as the April spritz come out before the business chat, it's kind of fine. It's a really important thing to point out that Cameron presented himself as a prime minister who would clean up politics. He did this famous speech on lobbying. It's the next big scandal waiting to happen. And he offered this kind of lovely, colourful description. The lunches, the hospitality, the quiet word in the ear, the ex-ministers and ex-advisers for hire, helping big businesses find the right way to get its way. He said he was a guy that kind of cleaned it up and thanks to him we know about it, and that's not the case. Coming up, Cameron texts and Greensill speaks. But first, just to let you know that on Monday we'll be taking a long, clever look at that amazing Dominic Cummings performance before a different committee. And second, here's a message from the boss. Hello, I'm Emma Tucker, editor of the Sunday Times. It's thanks to listeners like you that we're able to provide journalism that matters. Get to the heart of the story every day with the Times and the Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Days before his appearance in front of the Select Committee, Cameron's correspondence with ministers and officials between March the 5th and June the 26th, 2020, the vital period of his lobbying, was published by the Treasury Select Committee. The correspondence revealed Cameron's use of charm when writing to Tom Scholar, the most senior civil servant at the Treasury. I am riding to the rescue with supply chain finance with my friend Lex Greensill. See you with Rishi for an elbow bump or foot tap. Love, DC. He signs off his text to Tom Scholar, love, DC. Again, we kind of come back to what is the definition of embarrassing, but I think he sort of rather liked explaining. Anyone I um, know even at all well, I tend to sign off text messages with love, DC. I don't know why I just do. And uh, his children kind of mercilessly mock him for this. My children tell me that you don't need to sign off a text message at all, and it's very uh, old-fashioned and odd to do so. He was riding to, to somebody's rescue, namely that, that of his own company. But also told Tom Scott that he was glad you were at the helm. Well, it's not only that he said you're glad you're at the helm. He sort of did the sweet stuff. I thought the tone was kind of interesting. Was he, then he said, Greensill have got a no. I am genuinely baffled. Can I have five minutes for a call? This seems bonkers. I'm now calling Chancellor Gove. Everyone. So he kind of was charming at once, but also, you know, more than happy to tell him that what the department was doing was kind of outrageous and why are you not helping me and the guy who's paying me? The kind of tone and texture changed depending on the recipient of the text. Notably, and this won't be a surprise to any student of politics, 
There didn't happen to be Love DC in his text to Michael Gove, who famously betrayed him over Brexit. It was just all good wishes. I think what was striking about it was just he kind of obviously didn't feel any kind of great shame or embarrassment about just demanding help. Now, one of the things that really stands out is what you might call his text blizzard of the afternoon of April the 3rd. Tell us a bit about that. So we actually have the benefit of seeing when these texts were sent, and we can see that many of them were sent kind of minutes apart. So Cameron must have been sitting on the sofa or in a car, furiously firing out texts to the Treasury, to Rishi. I mean, it was on this day that he goes to Tom Scholar, uh, Rishi Sunak, Johnson's business advisor, a man called Sheridan Westlake, Jesse Norman, chief financial secretary to the Treasury, then Westlake again, then John Cunliffe, the Bank of England, and latterly Michael Gove, Jesse Norman again, and then John Glenn. I've actually got the benefit of the whole document in front of me, and I was reading what I thought was the only page of this stuff, and then it just goes on and on and on. It was this day that Cameron starts uh, getting a bit grumpy about the Treasury's refusal to bow to Greensill's proposals. This sort of conveys such an amazing understanding of the way the system works, where the Treasury is not being cooperative, perhaps the Prime Minister's personal business advisor who personally worked for me, maybe. Where Sheridan Westlake's unable to make things happen, maybe my old contacts at the Bank of England will be. If it's not there, then maybe Michael Gove will give me some joy. I know you're manically busy and doing a great job, by the way. This is bloody hard and I think the team is coping extremely well. But do have a moment for a word. I am on this number and very free. All good wishes, DC. And on and on and on it goes. And, you know, it was after this that the Treasury reopened the book on Greensill. But Michael Gove has nothing to do with the Treasury at this point. But perhaps there's this sort of comparison or metaphor that people invoke to describe the way government works at this moment in time. They say that Boris Johnson is the chairman of UK PLC and Michael Gove is the CEO and has this kind of great fiefdom in the Cabinet Office from which he pulls all these strings. Cameron may have thought because of his proximity to number 10, because of his role as a conduit between the Treasury and Downing Street, maybe he'll be able to help me. And there's certainly a whiff of desperation as well. Do you know the one I like the most? Tell me. I like the one at 3.22. David Cameron to Rishi Sunak and he says, Rishi, David Cameron here. Can I have a very quick word at some point? HMT are refusing to extend CCFF to include supply chain finance. There is a simple misunderstanding that I can explain. Thanks, DC. And you think, what, Rishi Sunak is supposed to believe that the whole of the rest of the Treasury haven't understood this explanation? (laughs) That's what's so amazing. He uses the words that it's nuts to be ignoring his proposal. If only people understood that I'm actually meant to get my way, then the Treasury would have produced a different response. I mean, it is astonishing entitlement. And also, it's the fact that he acknowledges in so many of these texts. He's sort of sheepish and sort of praiseful at the same time. He says, you know, I get you are doing a great job. This is a crazy time. You know, I know you don't have much time in your hands, but... Give me the money. Can I have the money, please? Seems like your officials don't get the drill. I'm meant to get my way at this stage. <laughs> yeah. And Andrew Eagle, <laughs> the Labour MP, said... Mr Cameron, I've read your 56 messages 
Uh, and they're more like stalking than lobbying. There were a number of moments from, you know, Andrew Legal, notably, and Rishanara Ali, both Labour MPs, which, you know, it was almost as though they had noted by this point that Cameron didn't feel the need to apologise, didn't think he'd done anything wrong. I mean, on one hand, it was just a kind of catharsis for them. They were delighted to, just as Labour MPs, stick the knife into Cameron. But I think there was some sort of genuine kind of visceral outrage that you could really detect on their faces when you saw this stuff being read out and Cameron offered a kind of tranquil smile and offered his answer and, you know, was at the stump, you know, happily batting away the ball, awaiting the next question. Now, if we hadn't heard much from Cameron before the appearances from the committees, we'd heard just about nothing from his employer, Lex Greensill. So he appeared for the first time, spoke on the record about it for the first time. What impression did he make on you when you first heard him talk and when you looked at him? One of my sources for the Greensill stories, I recall quite distinctly describing their first encounter with Greensill. It was during the time that the kind of fresh-faced Aussie banker had been parachuted into Whitehall by Jeremy Hayward. And this source was asked to meet him in the Treasury Rotunda over a coffee. And I've got the notes arising from this and various other meetings. And this civil servant kind of immediately thought, this man is sort of oleaginous and there's an agenda here that I don't understand and I find it very, very difficult to believe what it is that he's saying. And it seems as though, kind of looking at Greensill's rise and demise, and you've kind of spoken to John Collingridge and there are lots of people that can tell you about the financial dimension of what he did, but it seems like on a kind of social business development level, uh, it was a game of numbers for him. You know, almost like one in every 100 people would be seduced by his charms <laughs> the remaining 99% would say, what an odious character. And I think I kind of got a sense of both of those reactions from this appearance. Because on one hand, you did get a man of kind of total conviction, almost like Cameron. He didn't appear to be particularly flustered by any questions. He really believed in what he was saying. He you know, didn't depart from his central narrative, which was he was really trying to help the little guy there's all the terrible coincidences, company imploded. And on the other hand, you kind of start to understand why it was that for other people he had the opposite of a magnetic appeal. I mean, he claimed at the outset... Please understand that I bear complete responsibility for the collapse of Greensville Capital. He said, sorry. I am truly sorry. And then he just proceeded to spend two hours explaining why none of it was his fault. I mean, that was the sort of the irony and contradiction at the heart of his testimony. He was given some fairly direct questions, wasn't he? Mr Greensill, are you a fraudster? The issue with it was the Treasury Select Committee doesn't have any powers to demand information from him. And, you know, a lot of the time when he said... With the greatest respect, um, um, I am not able to comment... Uh, about specific clients. Anybody who's momentarily studied this story or read the Sunday Times or FT over the last while will know that at the heart of this story is Greensill's symbiosis with Sanjeev Gupta, on which he did not shed much light other than rather cryptically saying that... We did have a concentration on certain mm -hmm. customers that was too high. He did generally play ball, and it was said after his appearance he might have even misled Parliament when he claimed that you couldn't be a shareholder and, and uh, um, we lend to you without there being a very specific process that had to go through the highest level in our board to be uh, to be approved. Actually, he loaned 
300 million euros to one of its private equity backers. So there are some questions anyway as to the fastidiousness and accuracy of his testimony. In recent episodes in this series, we've learned about future receivables or future sales, something against which Greensill appears to have been lending money to Sanjeev Gupta and which are now a topic of interest for the serious fraud office who've opened an investigation into Gupta's GFG alliance. I've looked up the definition of fraud. It's an act or an instance of deception, an artifice by which the right or interest of another is injured, a dishonest trick. Again, as a layperson, it seems to me that this is precisely what your financial model of prospective receivables is. For those who haven't listened to parts one to four, this is this kind of practice that Greensill engaged in where he would pay the invoices of a business called GFG Alliance, owned by a steel tycoon called Sanjeev Gupta. But he was paying invoices for consignments of steel that in some instances might not have existed or the allegation goes were filed by companies who when contacted said that they'd never done business with the corporation in question. So Greensill rather acutely attempted to compare this whole future receivables business. Think about it, the largest pub groups in the UK finance themselves and their estate using future receivables. You know that a certain number of people are going to come in um, and buy a pint on a given day. You know, you don't necessarily know who they are, but, you know, you can revision for them and therefore get a certain number of chairs out and buy a certain number of drinks. And that's just kind of the way life works was the implication. And, you know, he's obviously right to say that lots of businesses are heavily engaged in predicting the future. What he didn't address, what he wouldn't address, was whether doing so is appropriate when it comes to an asset like steel, which fluctuates so heavily. You know, why was he magicking money for Sanjeev Gupta for future payments, which were coming down the line in months or years from his distressed steel mills. And moreover, what he didn't say again is what he thought about. I understand here that companies have said that they've been asked about receivables and they have done no business with you. The allegation that some of these customers didn't even exist. And, you know, it's quite hard to do a definitive post-mortem of one's company when you don't address that issue at the centre of it all. Yes, and also the fact that people are going around, influential people, asking for significant state aid, i.e. taxpayer aid, for businesses they don't seem to understand on behalf of business people who don't seem to understand the other business people they're dealing with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a very good way of putting it. Kind of the blind leading the blind, or the willfully blind leading the willfully blind, perhaps, when Cameron, at the height of the pandemic, was lobbying for Greensill. Um, he was lobbying for a company whose entire business model, it has since transpired, was based on financing a company he may not have understood, whose modus operandi allegedly involved fraudulently filling out invoices and sending them to Greensill. So, I mean, it is a, r- a right old mess. And there are a lot of people who should have known more that didn't know more at various points, or at least claim not to have done so. And that actually has taken us into our kind of final section anyway, because the question is what we have learned from the texts, the emails and the appearances that we didn't know before. And the thing that I'm getting from you, Gabriel, is not that we found out stuff that we didn't know before, but that we are entitled to be slightly amazed at their insouciance, really. The thing that is part of it, there would have been a world in which any one of the texts that Cameron sent to the Treasury Select Committee 
last week would have been a kind of national newspaper front page and mini scandal at the very least. Now we've just sort of accepted. I think it was their attitude that, that hit me the hardest, because it was a week in which, you know, the Financial Conduct Authority, the Serious Fraud Office, as well as all these select committees announced that they were investigating Greensill and Gupta. And, you know, to, to see so much of it dismissed with a mere shrug of the shoulders was quite striking. It's sort of not the rule breaching that is what is concerning about this. It's the fact that the more you reflect on it, the more you realise there simply aren't really any rules. I abided by the rules that were in place. But rules alone are never enough. Cameron, I don't think will have broken the letter of any law um, or any regulation. Really, this is almost a story of the absence of rules. And you know, a lot of people have said over the last few weeks, oh, but nobody cared at the ballot box. That might be true. Frankly, most people feel like politics is pretty distant from them at the best of times. So, you know, at the moment, you can actually look to your arm and see a little pinprick from where the government has injected, you know, life-saving vaccines into you. That probably, you know, feels like it supersedes um, any kind of distant and remote scandal about a politician you didn't have a high opinion of anyway. But I think because of that apathy, it's always almost more important that we have this conversation about the rules or, or the lack thereof. Because, you know, the fourth estate plays some sort of role in regulating politics. And when there is apparent apathy about these issues, I think it becomes even more important to continue drawing attention to them. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Sunday Times Whitehall correspondent Gabriel Pogrand. You can read all of Gabriel's reporting on the Greensill Affair at thetimes.co.uk and you can hear all the episodes in this series on the Reporter podcast now. The producer was Edmund Drummond, the executive producer was Poppy Daben, and sound design was by David Crackles. And if you've got a story you think we should be covering, possibly an idea for a future episode, or just thoughts on what you've heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimesatthetimes.co.uk. See you on Monday. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.